Hey guys, this is Troy L. Smith, host of the CLE Rocks podcast. On January 26, we hosted a live version of the podcast at the Music Box Supper Club in Cleveland's Flats. The focus was Swingos, the legendary rock and roll hotel that became a shining light for Cleveland in the 1970s. Here is that episode in its entirety. Enjoy. Welcome to CLE Rocks Presents, which is the live version of our CLE Rocks podcast, which I started a couple years ago. It looks back at the memorable people, places, and events in Cleveland music history. Uh, it's been an honor to do the podcast, talk to the fans, talk to a lot of people who were there. And now flipping this into a live version, we get to bring you guys, the audience, many of you were at these places, at these events, into the fold which makes it all the more exciting. Um, now, I have an all, I like to call it an all-star panel of guests here, because it was just me talking, we get old real quick, so I'm gonna introduce these guys. Uh, first up, we have uh, Andrew and Catherine Marquard. Give it up for them. Okay, husband and wife. Uh, Andrew directed, Catherine co-produced with Andrew, your brother Greg, yeah. did I have it right? That's uh, correct. The uh, Swingo Celebrity Inn 2016 documentary through their film company. I want to plug it real quick for you guys. Uh, it's available to rent or buy. You can stream it on Vimeo. Uh, I watched it again this morning, which is like my fourth time watching it. It's really cool. But I have this question after seeing your guys' faces, right? So I figure out who directed this thing. I want to have them on the panel. And then I see them and I go, okay, they're maybe a couple years older than me. So how the heck did you guys wind up being interested in, you know, a documentary or making a film about this hotel that existed or probably ended its run right around the time you were born? So we were going to the Cleveland Film Festival because we love the Cleveland Film Festival. Uh, woo! And we were going, we were rerouted home on our trolley to get back to our apartment and we passed by Swingo's Court and I'm like, huh. Swingo's Court, let's look into this. Let's look into what this hotel was because it's just this little street behind the Comfort Inn. So we go home and we start to Google and we find this article written by... This is Michael Heaton from The Plain Dealer at the time. Yep. And we um, read this article and we're like, no way, this all happened right here downtown, East 18th and Superior. So... Wait, Euclid, sorry. And we were like, oh my gosh, this is great. And so we reached out to Michael Heaton, and Michael Heaton, um, Jim, Matt, me, and Drew all met in Sam and Dave's in Lakewood, and the idea was born. Awesome. Like I said, it's on, it's on Vimeo. You yep. can watch the documentary. It's fantastic. All right, next up, uh, my man David Spiro, uh, Cleveland radio legend, pioneer. All right, so David, correct me if I'm wrong on some of your bio info. At the age of 13, you started working for your dad, Herman's uh, Upbeat TV show? Yep, yep, and I was the cue card guy. <laughs> um, anything Don Webster said, I wrote, even at 13. Um, he sometimes misread it, like the time that he was talking to Joe Tex and said, what do you think about that Dr. Pepper album? But I tried. You know? paying, paying your dues. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> uh, then you go on to become a personality for a number of radio stations, including WMMS. Yep. Then you go into talent management, Joe Walsh, Eric Carmen, Ian Hunter. 
Am I correct? You managed Vanilla Ice at one point. Yeah, that was uh, that was a good day. <laughs> yeah, Ice was an uh, interesting guy. Um, he had made $25 million by the time he was 20 years old and was bankrupt when I took over. So And you made him all his money back? Um, I got him back to even. I like it, yeah. yeah so. right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to ask you before, you know, before we move on about Swingo specifically, and we'll get into this. You spent a lot of time at Swingo's back in the day. <laughs> yes, Swingo's was, um, when I was on, on WNCR and then later on WMMS, it was just the place where everybody went after work. I mean, this is where we hung out. Um, there's a guy named Bob Farrell who was a photographer for Scene Magazine for years, and um, he sent me this picture that he had taken of me at Swingo's at the, at the, in the coffee shop there. They had these low stools, and it's Johnny Winter, me, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the three of us which kind of said everything about Swingos at that time. But we'd go over there and, you know, if I would have Jimmy Page on my show or something, you know, we'd go over and hang out at Swingos and, you know, bust up a few rooms and see what would come through the windows and what you could do in the hallways. Um, it, was, um, it was as decadent as the riot house in L.A., the Hyatt on uh, Sunset. Um, and it became a place where every single rock and roll band wanted to come and make their mark. Um, I only stayed there once. We were doing the Michael Stanley Stage Pass album, uh, the Agora. And it was just easier if we stayed downtown. We did it three days in a row instead of going back home. And plus, we wanted to feel like rock stars. <laughs> and uh, we were actually in the restaurant once when we saw this looked like a scrum from a rugby, rugby game coming through, and it was Elvis with all of his cronies, and all we could see was Elvis's head, <laughs> the top of his head as he's walking by, and we're all going, this is the greatest day of our lives. <laughs> <You know? laughs> we didn't meet him, talk to him, but we saw the top of his head. <laughs> all right, last up, uh, a guy we couldn't really have done this event without, in my opinion, it's Matt Swingos. Yeah, funny about that. Can I ask you a quick question? Were you named after the hotel? <laughs> yes. Okay. I was just something I just wanted to know. I'm sorry. You know, so it's funny because in the restaurant business, people are, are you, your name's really Swingos? You know, I thought yeah. you're Swingers, you're Swingos, you're yeah. you know, everybody, nobody knew what it was all about. But yeah, it's our last name. Yeah. Okay. And, I just and Matt, you know what I find interesting, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were born like. A few years after your dad, Jim, started this whole thing, right? Well, he started in 67. Right. I was born in 71. Oh, wow. Okay. So you're really coming of age as Swingles is hitting its peak. <laughs> yeah, I was. Yeah, I did. Awesome. Um, okay, so I'm going to set the scene here. Uh, as, as Matt sort of said, that uh, his dad, Jim, is really the reason we're all here. Leg legendary Jim Swingles, uh, hospitality legend in the industry. In uh, 1967, he was uh, 24, 25 years old, Matt, your dad? Exactly. 24, yes, sir. 24 years old, and he buys the restaurant, or leases the restaurant uh, in the uh, downtowner uh, Cleveland uh, Motel, or Motor Inn, whatever it was yeah. called. An awesome name. It was actually called both. Was it really? Yeah. <laughs> some people said a downtown, and some people Motor Inn, yeah. 
And it was uh, a dump. You're <laughs> not when you guys had. I mean, before that, it wasn't like a place that, you know. Thank you, David. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just telling you the it truth. It wasn't a dump for long. <laughs> so he okay. So he opens the. It wasn't uh, the Ritz Carl. Okay. <laughs> he opens the keg and quarter. Um, and one thing, you know, obviously we're going to talk about all the rock and roll stories. But one thing I think that might get lost when you really dig into uh, those early days with keg and quarter is. It was really about your dad and the food and service, right? Like, that was the thing. The Absolutely. Food. Well, I mean, speaking of service, uh, Mr. Miller, I had three drinks up here. So <laughs> I have none. The kind of, this is the kind of service I like. <laughs> so thank you, sir. <laughs> Diet Coke. All right. In a dirty um, glass. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I mean, you know, talk a little bit about, you know... It, those early days, you know, and your dad, I'm sure he's told a million stories to you, but it was really about the food. It was really about creating this awesome food program there. You know, it was, it, people love the big stories. People love the rock and roll stories, the drug stories, the sex stories. I mean, that's, that's what sells. But my father was a student of service and great food. You know, anymore, I mean, if you don't buy the best product, you can't produce the best product. And he, he just was uh, a man that never, ever, ever sacrificed quality. And uh, service was number one to him. And protecting the people that came in. You know, um, their identity, no matter if it was David Bowie or Freddie Mercury or Elton John, you know, when they came in, there was one elevator, there was two exits, and we had security. Whether it was the Cleveland Police Department or the Sheriff's Department, these people were protected. Their identity was protected, and he gave them the best. Right, they we, used to say that. Sorry, I was say we used the excuse for the documentary of needing footage of the foods uh, in order to get Matt to cook for us. Uh, so <laughs> it was that was fantastic. Really nice. <laughs> Bananas, Foster, all the rest. Is that where the food comes? Because you guys do reenactments in the documentary. So Matt made the food. Uh, a lot of the food, yeah, oh, not wow. all of it, but. Uh, David, I wanted to ask you, so go back to that time um, when Jim Swingos is he's opening the Keg and Quarter and getting started. What was uh, Cleveland like back then? You know, it was a city that was struggling, right? Pretty dark. Oh, yeah. It was I dark. Mean, what, it was like the other hotel. Yeah. <laughs> it became the other hotel. He took us down there on Monday mornings. That was it. Yeah. 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 And it's, uh, if you were having an anniversary dinner, birthday dinner, it's the only place you would think of. And the thing is, even, even for me and, and, your, and your dad at the time, if I would come in, they knew what I wanted. And it would be there. And I would bring, you know, I'd bring artists over there all the time that were on the radio station. And they did. And, and it wasn't because these were famous people. I think it was because your dad took such pride in everything that he did about that place that he wanted to make sure that if, when Frank Sinatra would come in, the only place he would stay is, is there because he knew what his room was going to look like what his meals were going to be. He knew that everything would be, you start at first, first class and then you go up about four steps. And that was the magic of, of the Kevin Quarter and, and Swingos. Now, the one thing that it was at the beginning, and it's why when we were doing the Upbeat Show during 64 to 71, basically, you know, during that time, we couldn't afford to pe put people over there. <laughs> So we used to use the old Versailles Hotel that was next to Channel 5. But 
the re I mean, it, but that was a good thing because this was a place, it, it put Cleveland on the map as far as if you're traveling and you're, you know, you're in a rock and roll band or you're the CEO of, you know, a top five company, you want to make sure you're staying where you're comfortable and you want to be sure that you're safe and you want to be sure that your needs are taken care of. And that was it. I, I, if I can interject, David, you know, you talk about affording it. I mean, Bruce Springsteen, when he came to town and, and, and he had his big layout at the Agora, yeah. he couldn't afford to stay at our place. Right. My father comped his rooms. He did that you know, to he he, Southside Johnny. So many people. I mean, he, he really you, did. You can name them all. And um, even, you know, I don't know if anybody realizes, but Cindy Lauper just did her billionth YouTube presentation. Wow. Yesterday, I yeah. think it was. She couldn't afford a room. My dad comped her for three days. Well, that's what now, he believed in her. He believed in her. That's what he so would it's, do. It's, and, uh, um, it, was, it wasn't about the money. He believed in the city. Um, and uh, we'll get into the Sinatra stories in a little bit. I, I, well, you know, so I, I remember going over there once with Brian Wilson. And um, Brian was staying there, but I had taken him over there after our radio interview. And there was the piano in the... Uh, in the lounge? Yeah, in the lounge, right. right. And Brian sat at the piano with Jane Scott sitting next to him on the piano bench and played, I don't know, for a half hour. And these people were just like, oh my God, that's Brian Wilson <laughs> when he could do those things, you know? But you know, it opened it up for that. Everybody felt that's how comfortable it felt for a guy like Brian Wilson, who was incredibly shy, doesn't really talk to people even in his best days. For him to sit down and like go, oh, these people like these songs. Right. And that, that was kind of the allure of the place. Yeah. But at the end, it was a, <laughs> you know, the downturn of the place because Iron Maid would show up at two in the morning. Right. And there's business guys that want to sleep. And Iron Maiden, they're ready to party. Yeah. So, I mean, well, I, I remember in our documentary with Michael Stanley, I mean, you know, he met B.B. Keene, they, they jammed on stage together. Right. They kept the place open all night. I mean, Michael Stanley, rest in peace, jamming with B.B. Uh, King at Swingos. Yeah. And uh, he talks about it in the documentary. There was a, um, Sinatra had just stayed there, and the next night, Poco came in. And I was really good friends with those guys. And Richie Fure ended up getting the presidential suite. And he had known that Frank had stayed there the night before, and he wanted some sort if of I could, a if souvenir. If I can correct you, we uh, called it the Swingo Suite. The Swingo Suite. Right. I, just, I had to correct No, you. no, I, that's, I, I'm old. You know, I don't remember all these things. But Richie, the one thing he thought, oh, well, Frank must have used this while he was here. He stole the toilet seat. He did. That is a true story. I know. I saw it's it. It's a true story. It, it hangs in his house to this day. And he's got a little plaque that says, Frank Sinatra sat here. No shit. I'll get you a picture of it. I'll have Richie send me a picture. All right? That's a true story. Now you can catch their comedy duo routine next week. <laughs> we uh, you know, obviously, as you guys said, uh, Jim was really, you know, all these rock stars came through. Jim was the real rock star, and he passed away in 2015, the, the person who drove Swingos. I'm curious, uh, Drew and Catherine, you had one of the last public interviews with them before he passed away in the documentary. What was your impression? It, it looked like you were sitting with them. I don't know which one of you guys did the interview, probably Drew, but were you sitting just with him at his dining room table right there? 
yeah, he'd invite us over to his house and, and we'd sit in his living room and, and interview him there. We did two or, or three, I don't know if you remember, Matt, but uh, it might have been three separate interviews with him. And, and we had planned to do one more. Uh, we wanted to do uh, bring him back to the hotel, which is a comforter in now, um, and just have him walk around and kind of uh, show where things used to be um, when he had sadly passed away. Yeah, and it's, um, it is sad, but it is pretty incredible to see him because there's certain stories he tells, and we'll get into them, specifically Sinatra, where, you know, your dad seemed like a low-key guy, you know, in the documentary, but he, he kind of, you know, perks up when he talks about the, the Frank Sinatra story. He uh, would light up the room whenever he would talk about <laughs> Sinatra or any of those guys. He would just perk up, and he would tell these great stories like no one could tell him except for him. And so it's just so great to have that on footage for the Swingos family and for every rock star lover. And Matt, let me ask you this, because when you look at the history, there's a keg and quarter, then he you know, capitalizes on that opportunity to buy the hotel and, and redo it. Was that always a plan for him? I mean, obviously he was in the food service. It, was it in the cards? Was he always looking at doing something like owning a hotel? You know, no, I think it was all about opportunity at the time. You know, in, in the early 60s, he worked at the Greenbrier, which was in Parma Heights. Um, and a matter of fact, his pot watcher the guy that cleaned the pots in the kitchen became our executive chef for 45 years. So that's, wow, wow. that's the kind of devotion my father had to his people um, and the people that stood up for him and, and made things right. So you know, before that, he was with Tasty Catering. I don't know if anybody remember that, because I certainly don't. But, um, but that's, uh, he had an opportunity out of the Greenbrier to, to buy the downtowner, um, borrowed $10,000 from... National City turned them down. Um, Cleveland Trust gave him the money. And the first two years, he did $3 million. So <laughs> screw you, National City. Yeah, right. <laughs> that was in 67. <laughs> and David, I think you probably started, you probably right in, you know, starting a radio at that point or getting into it when, he, when Swingos opened itself. I'm curious, what was the buzz like when Swingos opened? And I think the first big celebrity guest, Elvis, stayed there not too long after that. So what was the buzz like for this place in downtown? Well, I, start, I started in radio in 68. Okay. And um, at a station called WXCN. But by the time I was at NCR, which was like uh, 70 or 69 or 70, what were the years that you guys were? 67, we were. Yeah. So around 69 at, at WNCR. And the first time I had ever, I'd, I hadn't actually even heard about it at the time. But Crosby, Sills, and Nash were staying there. And they didn't want to come over to the radio station to do the interviews. So I went over to the hotel to, to do it. And just the people that were around, there were basketball players. There were, you know, obviously business people. There were other rock and roll people there. And um, it seems like overnight that just became the place. And that's that was just it. You know, we would go and sit at the bar for... You know, like you said, sometimes it was open all night long. <laughs> and there were many nights at, you know, 4 or 5 o'clock is when you're leaving there. Is that AM or PM? AM. AM, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> no, though, it was before happy hours were invented, so we weren't there at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> hey, hey, David, if I can interject, I mean, one of my, my early experiences at the restaurant was, I think I was 10 years old. Yeah. We just remodeled the lounge, and, and um, I'm looking at the bar, I'm I'm just, just looking at everybody there, and I'm like, 
Dad, Dad, who the hell is here right now? He's like, well, in that corner, we have the Hells Angels. Over there, we have the Cleveland Sheriff's Department. Over there, we have the Cleveland Police Department. Over there, we got the cocaine dealers. <laughs> Over there, we have the uh, George Forbes and uh, back then, who was the, right. who yeah. ran against uh, Mayor Carl, White? Carl Stokes. Carl Stokes and Forbes. Yeah. Or, and Forbes. And uh, over there we have the Irish Mafia. <laughs> and I'm like, how come there's not a fight here right now? But it was, it was a common respect for the place where everybody was just there to have a good time. And everybody got along. They got I along. mean, everybody, it's like rock and roll guys always want to be sports stars. Sports stars always want to be rock and roll guys, you know? And so you would have these combinations where... Stephen Stills is sitting there with Al Kaline t- telling stories, you know? And that was the beauty of it, is you never knew who you'd run into. And it wasn't like people just stayed there because they were in Cleveland. They came to go there. It was a stop to make. And the other thing, I'm not even sure, well, you would obviously be aware of this, but um, there's a thing that we do in... in Please don't spill one of the three of my no, drinks. No, no, I, I caught it. I've got three. I've got two more. If you spill it, though. Yeah, no, no. But you only Thank have you. two straws, so I don't. Anyhow, something started in the '70s to save money and sanity, and it was called hubbing, which is where, like, um, another one. Four. Is she driving him home? <laughs> Catherine, do you drink Diet Coke and Tito's? Because it's all yours. All right, let's go. <laughs> So we, we started, it, it made sense, instead of going, you know, to Cleveland, then to Columbus, and then to Cincinnati, and then to Pittsburgh, and then to Detroit. So what would happen is they'd come and they'd stay at, at your place for like two weeks. Hub, yeah. yeah, and it would be their hub. So they'd get on the plane over at the Burke Lake front, fly up to Detroit, do the show, come back that night. Go to Pittsburgh, come back. Go to Kansas City, come back. And, it, and because Cleveland is a much cheaper place to be than New York or Toronto or any of these other places, it made sense that Cleveland was the perfect hub because we're right in the middle of 70% of every show that any tour would be part of. Exactly right. And so that's where it became, that's why you never knew who you'd run into because the Stones might be there and they're not even playing Cleveland. But they're playing Detroit and Cincinnati and Pittsburgh and and Indianapolis and Chicago, so that was the beauty of the place. There and was yeah. There was also like when you read about it and you research it, there was a genius to some, a lot of the things that uh, Jim was doing, like his relationship with the media, the trades he made you guys, the you know themed rooms, and he had this understanding. And maybe Matt, you could talk about where it came from, but he and his team, it seemed like they really understood the rock and roll lifestyle where other hotels didn't want anything to do with it. But they also understood the business side of it as well, the business people that were traveling. Because, you know, at that time, we didn't have cell phones and uh, not even fax machines or or anything. Um, And there was always, you know, it was the first hotel I ever knew they had like a business center where they could help you. You need to ship something out. You need to do this. You need to do that. They were there for all that. I mean, it just, um, as a business person, it, it was the perfect place to stay. 
You spoke about the different venues and, and the suites and the Casablanca yeah. room. You know, that, that came after the remodeling where he, you know, did suites where Elvis stayed in. Or Kiss. Kiss was a huge, yeah. huge customer over time. And they remodeled the suites. But he also knew that when these guys came in, they trashed the rooms and he'd get to remodel again. You know, <laughs> like he, he was a genius to know that. Let them do what they want. And you know these stories. Um, you know, Zeppelin traveled with their accountant. At the end of their stay, it was a $50,000 check to remodel the rooms because our TVs are down on the, on, on the street, you know. Well, and, and it was into, like when Joe Walsh would stay there and, you know, I was working with Joe, um, they would decide what room needs to be redone. You're exactly right. That's the room they gave and, Joe. And my dad was part of the conversation, which was great. Right. Yeah, g give him 543, okay? <laughs> Have the crew ready to come in in the morning. Uh, you but, know, and you the, know and the, the, the beauty of it all, you know, it all started with Sinatra, and we'll probably get there. Yeah, we were. I just want to touch on Elvis because he was the first big star to stay there, and I was curious. Just with the documentary, you guys opened the documentary with the Elvis story. What was it about that story that stood out before you even get into sort of the timeline of Swingos? What was it about Elvis that you thought we need to start this thing? Obviously, he's Elvis. Right. I mean, that's just it. He was such a legend, and and he was the first. So it just made sense to us to to grab people's attention with with that story because it, it was such an elaborate story and Jim had so many memories of it too because he worked with Elvis so much over the years because Elvis was one of those people using Swingos as a hub um, so he was in and out all the time so uh, so for us that was the story that that really we thought would grab people's attention and, and uh, bring them along for the ride. And Carl who owns Carl and at the Barristers over here he yeah he tells a story that he used to make Elvis his favorite um, breakfast, which was an omelet with peanut butter and bananas. So for the documentary when we made that, um, I wouldn't suggest it. It's not that great. You didn't eat it, did you? I tried a little bite. No. I was like, well, Elvis likes it. But if, I, if I can interject. A lot of I mean, things Elvis liked. <laughs> Carl, Carl was one of the best saute guys. My dad, For my dad to say that he was one of the best saute guys he ever had because we were we were a saute restaurant you know back then everything was sauteed carl would be you know getting ready at about one in the morning to go home to marcel and see his young children and he'd get the sign that the zeppelin's coming in you know, soup it up again we're ready and he'd be there he'd be there those six in the morning cooking but that's the kind of people we had and uh till this day we're, we're very very close and Carl and the Barristers, which is still downtown. He's got Andy Annie's in Crocker Park, if you like pretzels. But uh, just a wonderful, wonderful family. I do have to tell you, as I travel around and run into guys, you know, on tours and stuff, you know, as soon as I say Cleveland, they say Swinko's. Oh, I remember. Oh, do you remember that place? Keg and Quarter? What was it? Everybody remembers it. Well, those that can remember. Well, and Matt. <laughs> well, you know what? It's funny you say that. My, my little brother lives in San Diego, and he was in L.A. at the time, and he was uh, doing some kind of promotion on the radio, and Paul Stanley was there from Kiss. And Danny's name came up, and the last name was Swingos. You know, it was a big hug and a kiss and this and that. He's like, hey, one thing I tell you about your father's place is I remember checking in. I remember checking out. 
<laughs> I don't remember anything in between. And Matt, you, you, you tell the story when you met Cindy Lauper, you know, and she called you Jimmy's son, she right? <laughs> yeah, that was, that was um, I was living downtown at the time. This is... 98, 99. I think, I think Cindy launched in 83, 84. So she was established. And we were at a, the sushi restaurant in the Ritz-Carlton called Century. I don't know if everybody remembers that place, but great, great sushi. And I lived downtown and, you know, anyway. So I see these three huge, large men walking in like this. Oh, my God, something's got to be behind them, you know. So I'm being cool, and all of a sudden I see some pink hair, and I hear a squirrely little voice, and that's Cindy Lauper. Um, so the guys are kind of protective, and I went up to him. I said, can I, can I say hi to Cindy? Well, who, who the hell are you? I said, don't worry about me. I just want to say hello. I don't want to get in a fight. You know, this and, and they got even bigger. They just start to expand. <laughs> anyway, I just well, tell her Matt Swingo said hello. And all of a sudden I, she jumps over these these big boys and said, Swingos, are you Jimmy's son? Jimmy's the best. He didn't ever charge me for a room, you know. And the big boys kind of backed off and we, we had a nice conversation, but uh, that's, the kind of, that's the kind of care he took up for people. And you mentioned Frank Sinatra, which is obviously a big moment uh, for, for Swingos. And that starts with Richfield Coliseum opening, right? He opens Richfield. Correct. Yes. That was Nick Maletti. Yeah, Nick Maletti uh, brings the Cavaliers, builds Richfield uh, Coliseum, and he encourages, he starts encouraging acts to play there. The first one, obviously, is Frank Sinatra. Um, how big, and you mentioned this already, Matt, but how big was the Sinatra staying there? How big was that to really pushing Swingos to the next level? That made us. Yeah. That was it. That was it. So when, when my dad found out that Sinatra was coming, <clears throat> In his wise wisdom, he, he searched all the hotels and restaurants in the country. Um, Beverly Hills, the desert, and, and most importantly, um, Vegas. And he found out what Sinatra liked. And after studies and flying out there and, and you know, talking to different maitre d's, maitre d's, we don't hear that word maitre d' anymore, do we? We need more maitre d's. <laughs> the guys that take you at the door at the restaurant and make your night, you know? We need more of those. Anyway, he found out that Sinatra liked Tootsie Rolls, that Sinatra liked Le Montrachet, which was one of the greatest, still is one of the greatest white wines in the world, so um, apple fritters and hot peppers. So he does his research, and when Sinatra's coming into town, um, his entourage showed up around 2 in the morning. At that time, we, we, we remodeled the old lobby, so when they came in, um, anybody that was there would see him. So we blocked, up, uh, we blocked off any of the guests that were there at the time, because Sinatra had an entourage of about 200 people. Anyway, we had a baker in the middle of the lobby doing apple fritters, and we had a, a snifter that was about the side of this stage full of... <laughs> Tootsie Rolls, pouring Le Montrachet that, I don't know if you remember the Hammer Company or Vintage Wine, Gina Perino brought the Le Montrachet in. And then he called Gus Gallucci to give him some hot peppers. To Gallucci. Anyway, the, the, the story is, 
is, is long, but I'll make it short. Sinatra's enamored. He's walking around. He's just in heaven. And he gets up to the peppers. My dad's standing right there, and Sinatra puts his hand in the jar and puts a pepper in his mouth. And my dad says, at that time, I started to sweat. <laughs> I said to myself, and I'm going to quote him, what if these fucking peppers are too hot? What if I burn his vocal cords? I'm fucked. Pardon me. And at that moment, Sinatra said, God damn! And then my dad said, he, he fainted. Those are the best friggin' peppers I've ever had. So one of the great stories of Sinatra. Was he a good tipper? You know what? Oh, there's a story. This, yeah. I like this. Well, we'll get to that. Yeah. Well, no, we could get to it because he, he, your dad didn't charge him for the dinner, but Sinatra got up, and what did he do? <laughs> you know, my, my, his whole stay, and at that time was probably a $10,000 stay, wouldn't give him a check. My dad would not take a picture with him until Sinatra insisted. He's like, Jimmy, Jimmy, take a picture. I don't want a picture. I don't want a picture. Jimmy, take a picture. So the lights just start going on my dad's head. I, I should probably take a picture. It's Sinatra. And my dad says, I don't have a camera. And all of a sudden, every busboy and every servant in the world's got a camera. <laughs> They're taking pictures. So he took a picture, and at that time, he knew the value what these, what these pictures were going to be. Never charged Sinatra a dime. Not a dime. This is on me. And he knew what it was going to be for the next 50 years. And Sinatra the next day lined up from dishwasher to bus person to server, 150 people, everybody got a $100 bill. You know. And at that time, we had 180 employees. Oh, wow. so that's the kind of respect that Sinatra had for my dad. That's when $100 was $100. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and it's, it's in, if you guys, again, if you see the documentary, you guys, it's one of my favorite parts uh, of the documentary, and I think Jim, if I, I wrote it down somewhere, I can't find it, but I think he called that the adventure of his life, you know, having Frank there. I had a question for you guys about the documentary, because you reenact that scene, you reenact a lot of stuff, which is really cool. Who are these people in these reenactments? Like, how did you put all that together? <laughs> okay, so our family just knows that we always get into this crazy adventure of our lives, so... We just told all of our friends, we posted on Facebook, we told all of our family, and we're like, come on, this is a, the chance of a lifetime, you're going to start reenacting all these scenes. And so I said, all you have to do is dress up like 60s, 70s, and come to, and we have a friend, Georgina, um, who's the manager of Velvet Dog, and she allowed us to use the entire facility one afternoon. And so all of these scenes are done at at the bar, Velvet Dog on the upper level. Um, and yeah, so those are all our, my cousins and aunts, uncles, my parents. <laughs> we did audition some actors oh, too. Yeah, we we did. Did. Well, <laughs> they're like the main actors that and actually I, have like know, a specific role. found the guy role. that looked the most like Frank higher. Sinatra. And, yeah, know. who played Sinatra? Troy, Troy, I tried to audition for my dad. They didn't, they, they didn't let me in. I said, I have some pool. <laughs> didn't work. Uh, so who played Sinatra? I think we only see the back of him, yeah. maybe. Yeah, we just see I think the back it was Peter, of his head. So I'm sorry, I don't remember his name anymore, but he was great. He was a phenomenal actor, did an excellent job yeah. for us. Okay, so we look back at that time. Richfield Coliseum opens, you have Belkin Productions, WMS, Jane Scott, the Agora. 
David, talk about, you know, can you put that time into words, the Cleveland music scene, you know, at that moment? Well, th it was like somebody turned a switch at one point, and Cleveland became the center of the music world. Every artist wanted to play Cleveland. Um, even in, in uh, Spinal Tap, you know, they go, uh, hello, Cleveland, and whatever city they were in, it didn't matter. <laughs> but, um, but that's what it was. It just became this big scene. There were local bands, the James Gang, the Glass Harp, Raspberries, uh, a little bit later, Michael Stanley, um, people that were making it on a national level. Everybody started looking at the bands in Cleveland. So it just became... If you look at a Blossom schedule from like 1974 or 73 or something, um, it's every single night. Pink Floyd, Jefferson Starship, this, this, every night. Michael Norman sitting over there, he, he never went to sleep. He had to go to Blossom every night to go <laughs> look at a concert and, and do a review the next morning. But then there, there was also La Cave, which was a little... A little jazz, uh, it started as a jazz club. Way to go, look out. Yeah. yeah, but it's where Simon and Garfunkel played. It's where Procol Harum played. It's where the very first ever Blood, Sweat, and Tears show with Al Cooper was. Um, then we also had uh, Leo's Casino, where it's the Temptations and the Four Tops and the Supremes, and Flip Wilson was the host, you know. Um, there were so many places that we were getting so many artists from, and it's one of the reasons that Upbeat became such, such a success, because we could get an act from Leo's, an act from Lacave, an act from the Agora, an act from here, an act from there. All of a sudden, you know, we have eight national people on the show every week. So it just exploded, and people came here for music. And I mean, before the Rock Hall and all that stuff, it, um, you, you go back even further as to some of the artists that came out of this area, even like Steubenville with Dean Martin. I mean, this has always been a hotbed. You know, Bob Hope grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. It's always been an entertainment uh, hotbed. And just, it, it, it's that kismet thing where it just, here's your place. Here's my dad's TV show. Here's all these clubs, here's all these people that are just coming to Cleveland because they want to rock and roll. And they're all staying at Swingos. And they're all staying at Swingos <laughs> because they want to run into Frank Sinatra or they want to but run you, into you, Elvis, you know. Hey, I'm, I'm going to interject. I, I interrupt a lot. By the way, like, Manfred Mann, was that blinded by the light? Mm -hmm. yeah. Right now, I am blinded by the light. <laughs> Wrapped up like a deuce, you know, yep. running the night, that's it, right. Anyway, those drinks um, are kicking in. Those drinks are yeah. kicking in. Hey, listen. <laughs> Springsteen wrote There's it. There's two full ones right here. <laughs> I got Anyway, going back to, to, to what David spoke about, and, and, and something special about Cleveland in, in the radio industry is, like, things were done on the handshake. It's not like it is today. I mean, I remember the Embrasher boys, and when I say boys, those guys are 80 years old now, the Restifos, the Maduris, and, like, we made deals on trade. And when you make deals on trade anymore, if they even do it, you know, you get your advertisement, they come in and eat, you don't say hello, nothing special. But 
when we made trades with these guys, when they came in, we sealed the deal. These radio guys came in, we, we threw it all out. We spent more than we could afford to do to make you guys look perfect. And, and, and that's the difference with how things are today. I mean, we, you we know, I used to do commercials for you, and in exchange, of course, yeah. I got dinner on Friday you, night. You still have a balance. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what it was, the trade. No, but it was, we believed in our people. Yeah. And, and the names that I mentioned are, were, were strong people in the city of Cleveland as far as radio goes. Well, it's different and now. politicians, and I mean, that's... Absolutely. It is. I, I mean, for me, I just think of it as a rock and roll hotel. But the reality of it was the amount of deals that were made at this place that affected all of us that lived in Cleveland. This was, you know, this was the hot spot. You go there at lunchtime and it's all the politicians sitting there working out, okay, well, I'll give you this, but you do this, but we need to do this and we do that. It was all and, legal. All legal. Yeah, of course it was. Danny Green used to hang out there, okay? He ended up in the grill of my car up at Brainerd Place. That's a true story. My, my, my buddy's sitting back there, Tony Anselmo, and his partner. His dad is uh, Dr. Rossi, and that was the last place he was at. Right, Tony? Where's Tony at? He was, he was at Rossi's place. He walked out, and that was it, right? He lost his teeth and everything else. But anyway, those are the people that, that came. It's going to be a lot of editing for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> with, Catherine? With us, Jim's hospitality, there was a law in Cleveland at the time that if a horse showed up to a hotel, it had to be stabled and fed. He made it work. He fed the horse. <laughs> he let it stay. Wait, I, need, like, I need more than that. Yeah, the I horse. <laughs> if I remember right, it was, a, it was a radio station or some DJ was playing a prank, so he, he showed up with a horse at the... At the hotel, and, and Jim just said, "Okay, we'll make it. We'll make it work." Yeah. I'm curious. He, he, go ahead, Matt. He, he he had a mentor named Ben Porath, um, that was just a marketing genius. No matter what Ben said, my dad would be on the front page the next day. <laughs> he had this idea about this horse. He was on the front page the next day. A freaking horse. We gotta get the horse a room, you know. But th just his mentor, as far as media goes was a guy named Ben Porter. You know, Matt, it's easy to forget, but you were a kid at this time, so what was it like being a kid around the business? You tell a story in the documentary about seeing the members of KISS with their makeup off, which the rest of the world wouldn't see for several years. So what was it like being a kid around all this? That was a lie. I never saw that. Oh, okay. It's Wait, a good tell lie. Story, tell the story about how... Actually, I did see it. Jim, tell the story about how your dad spoiled your class. Remember? Which field time? Trip. The field trip. Remember when he had all the well, candy? Well, let me get back to Kiss real quick. Okay. So, okay. so this, this is late 70s, early 80s. I'm 8 to 12 years old, whatever it was. And at that time, we had game rooms like Space Invaders and Galaga and Centipede. And so we had a little game room that he put up next to the, the Cinnamon Bear, which is our, was our, um, our um, coffee shop. So that was our highlight. We go there and play games. I walk in one night. Because you know, there was times we wouldn't see my dad for a week. You know, he was busy. Walked in and there's games. The games are gone. What the hell happened? Do we need to pay our bills? Or what's going on? I'm a little kid. I want to play some games. All right, man, I'll take you upstairs. So we walk up to 182. And I walk in and I see 
Ace Freely, who I didn't know at the time, and Peter Chris without their makeup. And all my, all my video games are in their, in, in their room. <laughs> so Kiss had asked to take the games up to their room, and that's where we played games all night. But that was the first time that I saw Kiss without their makeup. Of course, it could have been anybody. <laughs> you know that. It could have been what your dad was, like, goofing on you. Seeing what Ace Freely and Peter, oh, Peter were doing at the time, right. <laughs> they, that was Kiss. Yeah. That's why I twitch at times, after what I saw. Right, I, I want to talk about, you know, there's a lot of stories, obviously, and want to get them all. But um, I want to talk about Led Zeppelin, because you talk about the bill that they left. But, David, you were a part of some of these antics because of your relationship with Joe Walsh. Well, um... <laughs> You're pleading the fifth on me on stage? <laughs> All right, as I was telling somebody earlier, the first mother... Do oh, no, I don't want to go into that story. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was, you know, it was good fun. It was going hey, up... David, you have a balance on that one, too. <laughs> yeah. <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> it was going up, you know, being on the top floor and going around and collecting everybody's lamps and taking the, the, the uh, pillowcases and tying them on to the... Uh, what do you call it? The... Lampshade, yeah, and 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 throwing them out the window, and having a photographer sitting down there on the ground taking pictures of these things, and then Jimmy Page gets this great idea that, well, if we could do lamps with pillowcases, we could do a TV with a bed sheet. <laughs> TVs weighed a lot back then, <laughs> and of course it just went. <laughs> <laughs> But That's a, a reenactment we didn't do. Yeah. What's that? That's a reenactment we didn't do. Yeah, I mean, but, but those things just happen because when you're on the road with a rock and roll band, you live for 90 minutes to two hours a day. That's it. Everything else is getting to that point of doing the show. And you get bored. And, you know, Joe was known for, like, taking everything that was in the room, like taking this glass and gluing it to the ceiling and taking this When chair. I got bored, I went to the gym. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> but they can't do that. You know, right, people right. bother. Yeah. So, you know, you get creative. Um, to this day, Walsh is still not allowed at the Plaza Hotel in New York <laughs> because in the suites, they have real artwork. I mean, like, by real guys that we go, hmm, Renoir. <laughs> and Joe would go there, which he also did at your place, and he would cut out little things from magazines and he'd glue them onto the, onto the painting. So if there was a boat, he'd put a guy in the boat. <laughs> if they, there was a bust, I remember, in one of the rooms, and he put a cigarette, glued it into the... Turned out this bust was worth like 30 grand. But... Like you said, we had, if you listen to Life's Been Good, Joe says we had accountants paid for it all, <laughs> just like Zeppelin and Elvis and everybody else. We actually always carried Maserati the guy. Maserati went in 185, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's this, there's this moment uh, in the documentary, uh, about halfway through, it turns into epic story after epic story after epic story. You guys interviewed a lot of people. What was it like taking all these stories in? Were some of them just like, there's no way that fucking happened? Was it? 
Uh, yeah, it was pretty amazing. I mean, we were we were honored to be able to interview Mike Michael Stanley and. That was really embarrassing because I had never seen him in concert or anything, so I wasn't sure what he looked like. So I'm like, all right, wait, okay, well, before he comes in the lobby, I'm going to Google image him. So I Google image him. I'm like, okay, okay, I got it. And I'm like, I'm going to be cool. I'm going to be cool when I meet someone famous. I'm going to be fine. And I'm so nervous that I'm nervous he's going to forget his name. So I'm just like, hi, I'm Andrew Marquard. I'm not. I'm Catherine. This is Andrew. I'm sorry. And he's like, are you sure? <laughs> Well, at least you were sorry. <laughs> I was sorry. But you know what, Troy, you know, those interviews, those and beyond those, I mean, I think the reason we're still talking about swingos today is my dad was friggin' cool. <laughs> no doubt. And he yeah, didn't. Yeah, for sure. He was for the sure. real mayor of Cleveland. He did not. He didn't dump stories on rock and roll stars. Yeah, he did whatever they wanted, but he didn't talk about it. And that's why they trusted him, and that's why we're still talking about it today. So... And it wasn't just rock, it wasn't just rock stars, right? I mean, you had politicians, actors, athletes. Like he became close with Larry Holmes and his team, right? Muhammad he used, Ali. He used did. to call Larry Holmes Pinhead. <laughs> <laughs> my, my dad was about five eight. Larry Holmes was a big boy, heavyweight champion in the world. My dad would call him Pinhead. He'd laugh at my dad. You know, <laughs> that's the kind of respect that Larry had. You mentioned this in a documentary, and I, I, I wanted to ask you about this sort of the myth versus reality. There's a lot of great stories that happen at Swingos. How often did you hear stories or, you know, hear your dad say, no, nah, that, that didn't actually happen? I mean, there, there's some of that to it, right? Yeah, because you kind of want to believe the, the myths and the crazy, crazy stories. You just want to because it sounds so exciting. But he, he was always so – it was never out of – well, it was out of control sometimes. But yeah, very <laughs> control we, we heard sometimes. a lot of stories from employees and people who would say, well, I heard that, right. or, you know, uh, you know, this person said that, and they were never able to get a second source or anything. So we, we tried to not include a right. lot of the, the stories we weren't totally sure about. But so but everything yeah, in it is verified. But it, yeah, but there's a lot of, you know, I think a lot of exaggerations that happen over the course of the years, but also a lot of truth to a lot of those stories, too. Well, and that's the beauty of legends, right? Like, I mean, the stories that I heard, I either saw as a kid or my father told me. So I got to believe my father. Um, everybody remembers Yule Brenner? King and I, guys about this tall, right? So, you know, at this time, it's 1979, 1980, and we're all sleeping, and the phone rings. And the phone always rings at 3 in the morning in our house, you know. <laughs> Something's wrong at the hotel. Front desk calls that Yule Brenner is in his house coat. He's got a show tomorrow at the palace or whatever theater it was. And Richie Blackmore from Deep Purple is about to kick his ass. <laughs> you want to sleep, Deep Purple wants to party. And they're face to face. So my dad gets down to Cleveland from breakfast in about 8.2 seconds. And he breaks up a fight between Yul Brenner and Richie Blackmore. I mean, really? I can't make up that story. True story. And Yul Brenner probably would have kicked his ass, by the way. One, one story that did happen, and there's multiple retellings of it in the documentary, and uh, David, you're one of the people. Tell me about the Who uh, Coliseum show party from MCA Records. You, was it before or after you got handcuffed by Keith Moon? Oh. <laughs> that was a really fun you know, one of the One of the cool things about being a disc jockey is we were the guys that got to introduce our heroes on stage. And it would rotate, you know, like, so I, I, got, I got the who, you know, going up. And fortunately, I knew all of those guys. My dad had actually promoted a show of theirs 
when they first came to the U.S., first time when uh, Pictures of Lily came out. And um, so I'd gotten to know those guys because they'd worked a lot with my dad. And um, so they're in town. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're crazy. <laughs> Keith Moon taught Joe Walsh everything he knew. <laughs> they were banned from every Holiday Inn in the United States. <laughs> Not just the one in Chesterland, West Virginia, okay? And we welcome them. Of course you did. <laughs> of course, with open arms. With open arms. And, um, I mean, it was just... It, it comes down to what your dad did and what his staff did is made it comfortable for everybody to be who they were, which wasn't what it was like on the road for the most part, you know? A lot of time you're on the road, you're just you're locked in your room. You can't do anything, which is why you start gluing shit to the ceiling. <laughs> but but people didn't stay in their room at at Swingos. You know they 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 came out to see everybody else that was there, and the Who were like that. So they're playing. It's right when um, Who's Next came out, and that was like the album that really exploded them. And uh, I'm backstage, and uh, I'm talking with the guys, and it's like, okay, how do you want to be, you know, introduced? And that's like, well, just come on, say, ladies and gentlemen, the who, whatever. And Keith comes over, he says, well, we do this thing before the show every night, we all shake hands. So he comes over, and he shakes hands, and he puts a handcuff on me. <laughs> and then he handcuffs it to a radiator at public hall. Now, when you hang out with the who, there's a, there's a lot of pot, there's a lot of cocaine, there's a lot, you know, just the usual, uh, you know, rider requirements, as we call them. And I must say I was a little bit high. And the next thing I know, they're leaving. And I'm like, hey, guys, I, I'm the one to introduce you. And Keith said, I'll, I'll introduce us tonight. So I sat up there the whole night hearing the show just basically boom, 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 because I'm like four floors up. They come up afterwards, and we went to a place called Captain Frank's. Um, Captain Frank's was, if you know where the Rock Hall is, and you take that road all the way down to the water, that's where Captain Frank's was. And service was slow. It certainly wasn't like being at your place. And Keith had thought, well, you know what? I'll go catch my own fish. <laughs> and we were in the patio area, and he jumps into Lake Erie, which is when everybody found out that Keith didn't know how to swim. <laughs> and one of the road guys came in, and a totally soaking wet Keith Moon came back to the hotel. And, of course, being what it was, nobody's going, well, you can't come to your they meet him with like a half a dozen bath towels. Because <laughs> that's what the place was like. And the Who, I, I think they would stay there. Uh, these guys would all stay there today if it was still there. I mean, it's, uh, there's every band that toured in the world has, has a story about this place. And Besides the Beatles. Yeah. They're the only ones that didn't right. stay there. Exactly. I, I don't care who you name in rock and roll, country. They yep. all stayed there. Yep. The Beatles, we missed them by, I think, three years. 
Yeah, there's a, you know, you look at the montage, like everybody, you know, you know Zeppelin, Elvis, Ahu Sinatra, but then you look like a lot of the Motown acts, uh, for, uh, Ray Charles, like it's, it is literally everybody. My dad was a Motown doo-wop freak. He loved it. You know, Norman Knight, we all remember Norman Knight? Sure. It's his birthday today. Happy oh, wow. birthday, Norman. Oh, it is. Happy birthday, Norman. I think he's 80 today, actually. My dad loved that music. Yeah. Going back to Captain Frank's, do I have... I, I keep interjecting. Am I right? No, we're done with Captain. We, you know, it's funny because you cut me off of Captain Frank's. Well, that wasn't even the story. So, you did you ever make it, David, to the the after party of the Coliseum show? Or were you still handcuffed? Oh, um, no, because the after party started at Captain <laughs> Frank's and then moved over to the hotel. So by then, I was like, you know, free to go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Remember oh, when you wanted to, to make what? Swiss cheese? I'm sorry. Oh, where he's lighting uh, fire. Keith Moon like firecrackers and cheese. Wait, two people were talking. (laughs) (laughs) So in the in the documentary, Keith Moon, what his thing? uh, Because he used to, you know, you know, light firecrackers in toilets at a lot of places. M80s actually. Swingos. M80s. Yeah, swingos. It was he used blocks of cheese (laughs) at this party. Yeah. You might have. You might after the handcuffing. You might have been pretty far. Yeah, I was. Like I said, I, it's kind of like the story you say. I remember getting there. I remember leaving there. Every, you know, I think that's where they invented that saying. What happens at Swingo's stays at Swingo's. For, for you guys, I'm you know, assuming or hoping you saw uh, Almost Famous. Is that, that scene, how accurate is that? That's you know, going through that crazy lobby, fans, and then getting in in the hotel. And I know Cameron Crowe put a lot of effort into making it look authentic. That's really a great representation of Swingos. Oh, go ahead. So this was, I think about, that movie came out in 2000, I believe? Yeah, that sounds right, yeah. Um, so it was 97, 98, DreamWorks called us and... Cameron Crowe called uh, the restaurant directly and said, we want to do a scene, or multiple scenes at Swingos. We're traveling the country, and we're doing this movie called Almost Famous, and Kate Hudson, blah, 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 blah. My dad at that time, he's a proud guy, hey, whatever. Yeah. Matt, you call him back. You know, I don't, I don't know that at the time. And we called him back, and things happened, and it was you know, a great story of Cameron Crowe as a kid traveling, Everybody thinks it's about Zeppelin. It's about the Allman Brothers. No, it wasn't. Yeah, it is. It's about humble pie. We argue. Let's argue. That's about humble pie. It's about Allman Brothers. I th- I, <laughs> we have an issue here. Yep. Matter of fact, you know the, what? The guitar player that they're emulating looks like and was, was based on Dickie Betts. I went to school with his son, and it's not about the Allman Brothers. And I look like Arnold Schwarzenegger, but I'm not him. You know, it was about humble pie. If you watch the beginning of the movie, <laughs> there's this disc jockey. You see the back. He's got this big afro. That's me. Humble and pie. Frampton, of course, was in the movie. Right, let's clap for humble pie. Humble pie. Yes. Almond Brothers. Humble pie. One more time. Gonna have to separate you two. It was based on many artists, I'm sure. Yes, sir, it is. <laughs> but Zeppelin was the band that they thought it was based after. Right, but that one scene with the picture <laughs> was because Dickie was actually in front of Greg Allman. Okay. And that's that's where that whole thing when the t shirt came out. 
and Greg's like, excuse me? My name's Allman, and this guy's standing up front playing guitar? Little You're talking on stage now, when they're at a concert? Yeah. Okay, okay. Sorry about that. No, we're actually going to bring we'll the screen down there. and put on Almost Famous. <laughs> no. Um. <laughs> that was where I, I first Dickie learned about the swing of slip. Call Dickie if you like. <laughs> was it hard for you guys, you know, doing the film, you have the scene uh, from Almost Famous in there. Was that difficult for you to get permission to use that? Shh. All right, then. Never mind. Uh, we we, we reached out to them, and, and we never heard anything back. So, so we asked, but but um, we all of our music was redone by Colin DeSalt and a, and a bunch of his band friends, which was great, yeah. yeah. Austin Walken Kane. And, um, so that was really fun to, like, redo all of the music um, so that we could... I, I don't think we could get sued as much now. Yeah. <laughs> no cease and desist. Uh, we figured if we get a cease and desist order, we made it. You know, everybody knows about it. <laughs> when you get, okay, so, you know, Swingles has its run. Um, David and Matt, the decline of that sort of golden era of, of rock and roll, that also is the decline of, of Swingles, right? It, it all kind of coincides. What was that time like? Was it sad? Was it, you know, just, just time goes on? It wasn't a glamorous time, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, the decline of Swingles is, you know, Again, when the rock, we, we lost all the business guys. We, you know, the guys want to come in and rock and roll all night, and, and, and the business guys quit coming in. And at that time, in the early 80s, Cleveland went downhill. You know, there's no doubt about it. I mean, we're in the middle of Cleveland State, 18th and Euclid, and there was nothing going on there. For 20 years, my dad turned the lights on, and after 20 years, they went off, you know. But uh, what we catered to, who we catered for, um, we lost a lot of the business guys because rock and roll was our theme. Uh, you know, we, we touched on this, but, you know, and we're going to throw out to uh, questions from the audience in a minute, but the legacy of Swing Goes, and we talk about just how important Jim was, but also, and you, I think when you guys touched on this, it was really, you know, part of it was bringing people downtown and being this shining light at a time when, that was really it. You know, Swingos and, and the music scene was pretty much the, the one thing thriving for downtown Cleveland, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, what, that's what Cleveland was. It was the rock and roll city. And, uh, you know, it took all of these different parts to make it work. You know, if Belkins had stayed in the, uh, the clothing business and not promoted shows... You know, who knows what kind of a market this would have been for concerts. If my dad hadn't, you know, started the Upbeat show and was bringing acts in from all over the world, um, you know, who knows what the city would have been. If if Bill Randall hadn't been a disc jockey here and been the first guy to play Elvis north of the uh, Mason-Dixon line, who knows what would have happened. If we hadn't had what MMS became, uh, what WNCR was, what Wixie 1260 was, what, um, you know, um, WHK, when it was a, a big rock and station. It, it'd be hard to say. It just took all of these. It was the perfect storm. Everything hit at the right time. And as a result of it, we all have things we can talk about because of what was going on right here in a city that most people thought was dead. But e e even when... The concerts left the public public hall when we went out to Ridgefield. Right. We, we had another 10 years. 
Maybe people still came back downtown to sleep, you know, they and still they still do. <laughs> I mean, no, but there's no place to, you know, stay like out of Blossom and stuff Well, there like was that, that so. Barney Googles back then, that Holiday Inn. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that was, mm. <laughs> they had Barney Googles. They had room, room service till 8. Right. Yeah, right. that worked. <laughs> well, I guess what I'm saying is when Nick Belletti took, took the music out there, the NBA out there, the, 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 he took the two hockey teams out there, yep. people still came back to Cleveland to party and sleep. So that's a testament to, to the hotel. So we're gonna, I want to open this up to questions. We're going to have some, some people with mics out around here. If you have a question, just raise your hand, flag them down. Just please, God, do not ask about Almost Famous. Uh, <laughs> So start that again. <laughs> Does anybody have a question for anybody up here? Thank you and good night. There it is. Oh, sorry. That was that. <laughs> All right, we have one. There's somebody over is here. Is that? Yes, Mike. To. So, I mean, the, the craziest thing I ever saw, because I was there when Steven Tyler from Aerosmith was there, he wanted warm cottage cheese with ketchup. <laughs> so, I don't know if he was, you know, what he was ingesting, but he was trying to coat his throat, I guess. But um, <laughs> we went over the Sinatra story, the Elvis Presley story. Um, do I have time? Yeah, 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 go ahead, yeah. Um, when Elvis was checking in, um, as I said before, I think that the colonel became friends with my dad. He would only let my dad pick him up the airport. My dad at that time drove a, a big Cadillac Fleetwood Brown with the, you know, the things that fold down in the back seat. And Elvis would get in and, hey, hey, Jimmy. Hey, hey, Jimmy. So he'd say, he wouldn't say how he's doing. Hey, Jimmy. Hey, Jimmy. This is my dad's voice telling me this. So he gets to the hotel for the first time and, um, they get a call from room service to his room, and everybody knows that it's Elvis's room. Everybody's lining up to go up there. My dad's like, you know, I should probably take up myself. So Elvis orders a strip steak and a um, burger, just a burger patty. And on the way up, Elvis calls back. He said, will you, will you please cut those up into pieces, each of those steaks? My dad takes the gear darn down back downstairs, a rolling cart, and he cuts them up to pieces with Elvis once. Goes up to the room, opens the door, the door opens, a guy opens the door for Elvis, Elvis sitting in bed, he's like, uh, just leave it right here and walk outside. He didn't know it was my dad. So I guess he took a bite of the strip steak. He took a bite of the sirloin, the burger, and he knew that if the sirloin was good. These guys probably have a good steaks. So anyway, he ordered 400 steaks for the whole hotel because he liked our steaks. So just a weird thing, but if my dad would have said, no, I'm not doing that, you know, the guy would have never done that. But he ordered, they had the whole hotel book, so everybody ate steak that night. So just, I mean, an odd story, but a true story. You know, if I remember correctly, that was like one of the first hotels that had room service like 24 hours. I mean, that didn't exist back then. But because of the clientele, you know, breakfast at 3 p.m. And, you know, it was one of the first places I remember ever having like 20, it was like a cool thing. Hey, it's 3 a.m. We could, we could go get some french fries. Carl, 
Carl, you have anything to say about that? You cooked it. We have a, uh, I think we have a, Somebody wanted eggs. Your dad came to the kitchen and said, make him some eggs. He tried it for a steak. <laughs> but he got eggs. All right, Carl, sit down. Yeah, we have one question over here first. Mike? Yeah, David, I'd like to know, uh, because you brought this up early on, uh, and a lot of people that I hang around with don't believe me, WNCR. Tell me a little bit uh, what was like your favorite experience with that program. Because I still have one of the original posters from that. And I was only like 11 years old, but I had older brothers that listened to that. Is that, is that the one where I'm like leaning against the wall? You got it. <laughs> Will you sell it? How much would you pay? <laughs> I won't give it up. <laughs> Can you take a picture of it? <laughs> I could do that. Yeah. Um, NCR was weird. Um, I, I was like 17 or 18 when I first started there. And I'd been working on the Upbeat show. And at the same time, my dad was producing a show for a guy named Don Imus. And um, Don, I, 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 had, I had a big interest in radio. And Don said, well, do you want a job at WNCR? And I said, I don't know what that is. He said, it's a brand new station. You can play anything you want. They're looking for people. It was the FM of... W-G-A-R-A-M. So he told the program director that him and I had been doing shows in California. There's no, there's no internet or anything like that. And next thing I know, I'm hired as the morning guy. This is on a Friday. I start on Monday. I've never run a board in my life. And um, it was, uh, for me, it, wasn't, it was never a thing about, oh, it's so cool I'm on the radio. It was about, it's so cool that I can play all of this music for people. And that's what, WNCR became a true music station. We had no playlists. We had, you know, anybody who wanted to do whatever they wanted to do could do it. And we, at first, we had really no audience. We had the six people that called up. <laughs> uh, there were no commercials on the station. But all of a sudden, Every day, 10 great albums came out. Oh, Van Morrison, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, Led Zeppelin. Oh, a new Beatles. Oh, this. every day. We had so much music to choose from and so many people that really wanted to hear the music. There was no chance we wouldn't be successful. The biggest thing we had against us was there weren't FM radios in cars. And you had to go to, like, Olson's Electronics and buy... <laughs> this little box that one of your nerdy friends knew how to screw in and plug into the radio. Um, that was the only way people could listen to us. It was, a, it was, when I look back at radio, the NCR days were absolutely my famous favorite time. Every artist in the world would come down and hang with us. Um, I remember Neil Young was playing up at... Um, Case Western Reserve at Thwing Auditorium, if you guys remember that. And I had gone up there because I, I knew he was in Buffalo Springfield and I wasn't a big fan. And I, I just said, hey, I got a radio show. You want to come down? He goes, yeah, sure. And that's how it used to be back then. We have a... Yeah. We have a question right here. 
Hold on a second. Here we are. Did the Rolling Stones ever stay at Swingos? <laughs> they did. Do you have any good stories? You know, I, I don't... I don't... Kind of that. But I do remember that the centerfold of Rolling Stone magazine, and it was 78, 79, 80, and I'm still looking for it. The whole band was on the beach on the East Coast, and they had T-shirts on that said Swingos on the front. So I think it was, you know, two of them were with the Swingo celebrity in, and the other ones had, were, were to the back. And the back said, have you slept there lately? Meaning, <laughs> meaning that when people came there, they didn't sleep. But yeah. if anybody finds that photo, we, we were in the center of Rolling Stone magazine, and I still haven't been able to find it. But uh, the Stones stayed there many times. Yes. When we were fundraising for our documentary, we made those shirts to, uh, to sell for a fundraiser, which was really fun. So... People would wear them around. We had an intern, and she wore it, and, and, and she was being recognized in, like, other states and stuff. Like, whoa, Swingos, what? How do we get one of those shirts? I'll get you one. <laughs> I know somebody. <laughs> oh, boy. I think we have another. We have some more questions. Okay. Uh, uh, you, you talked about how the, uh, the rock and rollers and the, uh, the business people both were down in Swingos. And, you know, I've had some experience there. My father worked for one of the companies in Cleveland, they always had their corporate events down. And, uh, and I remember my mom and dad very fondly. Uh, this was a big event. They dressed really, you know, th this was their night out. This. And, um, and it kind of, I'd like to kind of get an idea of how it, it transformed or, or, or diminished because, you know, it was such a pillar of the city of Cleveland. And it was the place to go, and to to have that to get lost, and and to kind of degrade, as we know, you know, time goes on. But uh, I'd like to get your take on how you thought uh, how that went down. When I was commenting about the the, I mean, it was more the hotel business with the decline of, you know, uh, the business people staying there versus the rock stars. The dining room was strong till the end, but you know, in '83. We all know what Cleveland turned into. It was a ghost town. You know, going downtown Cleveland to, to, to eat dinner at the King Quarter, no, nobody did it. So, you know, we had a 20-some-year run there, and it came to an end. We moved to the Statler. Then we moved to Lakewood. Then we moved to Avon Lake. But that part of Cleveland, until this day, I mean, it's a comfort inn. And where the restaurant is, was at is a subway right now. So that kind of tells you what, where the city went, you know. And all due respect, it was just, it was an end of an era. I have a question over here, and then I think I have one back over here, but we'll go over here first. I have a question. Uh, Matt, maybe you can, Matt, I'm over here. I'm blinded yeah. by the light. <laughs> no, that's okay. Yeah. Matt, um, maybe you can, okay. Im to the right. you talk to us no. over here. He's over here. I thought, okay. yes. I thought that was Kenny Loggins, by the way. <laughs> hey, Kenny, good to see you. Um, I bought... Grandma and Grandpa Swingo's house in. Brentsville. I still can't see you. I'm sorry. I'm, oh, okay. I see you now. Okay. I bought Grandma and Grandpa's Swingo's house in Brecksville, and uh, I had heard that the Stones stayed there. As a matter of fact, Mick did. Maybe you can tell us some of the celebrities that might have come over there. Plus, I heard that that's where Jagger wrote, "You can't always get what you want." Is there any truth to that? 
I would love to tell you yes, but I have never heard that story before. Uh, my grandmother would have thrown Mick Jagger out. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that. they moved in there, you know, my, actually my cousin Dion's here, his, 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 his mother lived down the street. My grandparents were on the other street, we were on the other street. I mean, there were some stories at our house, but my dad would have never, ever in his life let a rock and roll person go to my, his parents' house, just out of respect, because he saw what he saw. So I hate to tell you, but that's false. <laughs> but so, so wait, so Mick Jagger didn't write, you can't always get what you want about your grandmother. Well, he did that too. Oh, okay. <laughs> just, I was just trying to bring the whole thing around. Hey, Mike Miller, where the lights at? Turn them up. <laughs> Uh, we have a, hopefully, PG question over here. <laughs> Just a quick question. How many rooms were at the Swingos? 180. And how many seats were in the restaurant? Two and a quarter. Who's, who's saying this? Where you at? Somebody you don't know. Hey, don't. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, the original, the original dining room had 225 seats, and the lounge was elevated in the middle of the dining room, so... We had a house band called the Snapshots, and um, remember the Snapshots? Who are you related to, Jesse or? Oh, nice! All right. Um, but after they remodeled the dining room, they they did the lounge and made the lounge in the, in the lobby. But uh, you have about 200 seats, 225 seats in the restaurant. We have a question right here. And actually, this, uh, I promised I would tell Matt this story here, and uh, this kind of goes into what David was saying about Jimmy Page. Uh, in uh, a different life, uh, I, I worked in television. If you remember the Saturday Night Live skit where Jimmy Fallon says, please tell me you got that, to the guy with the videotape. Uh, it was the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. Led Zeppelin's being inducted into the, rock, in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. However, they were also on tour as Page and Plant, and John Paul Jones was not asked to join them. In fact, he made a remark beforehand, they lost my phone number. So... They brought him into the press room at the Waldorf Astoria, and they said, no questions. They will not answer any questions. Forget about the questions. Well, that's going to stop the press. So they come out. Everybody's yelling questions. And I yelled out, when are you coming back to finish the demolition work on Swingos? <laughs> Jimmy Page looks over, big smile on his face, points and says, Cleveland. <laughs> just like that. And uh, to, to this day, everybody just remembers Cleveland, Swingos, Absolutely. and let's destroy whatever for, rooms we have. For the purpose of the podcast, you have to say you are. People are going to recognize you. Oh, I'm Mike. Voice. Michael Shesky. I've done a lot of <laughs> A legend, legendary Michael Shesky. Yeah. Yeah, he's tells written, that story in the documentary. Written too. amazing books about Cleveland and Clevelanders, and you're the one who should be up here. Oh, actually. well, I will be on February 24th, and uh, come on out. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, we'll take one more question if we have it. Way, way, we're going to go way back here. Well, well, we'll take more than one then. We'll go. <laughs> it's more of a, of a comment and acknowledgement, Matt. Thank you. Um, All right, where are you at? Over here, over here. on this side. Oh, okay. okay. I see it. So, yeah, I just wanted to mention uh, and acknowledge the fact that over the course of the 13 years or so, 1968 to about 1980, there was the house band, the Snapshots, that played six nights a week there at Swingos. And I know my sister and I are here, and just my dad, who's still around from the Swingos, the, pian the Snapshots, the piano player. So we had a lot of fun there. And you know, I remember meeting your grandfather and, and uh, knowing your dad and just being in the lounge and from when we were little girls until we were 
you know, until we were high school um, and dancing on the dance floor. So just thank you. We had, it was awesome, awesome. Uh, can I, can I, was what? your dad Joe Nira? Joe Nira, yeah. Oh, my God, thank yeah. you. Yeah, thank you. no. As a matter of fact, we just wanted to come and fly the colors. The, the, great. the original album from the Snapshot? Yes. yes. The Hey You we, in the Crowd. We've got it. But we donated the original to the Hall of Fame, just so you know, oh, about eight years ago. Thank you. So thank you. we're waiting for them to do something. Awesome. With our, awesome. The, the printophilia. Thank you so much. So they let like eight-year-old people into the lounge back then? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she couldn't have been older than eight. The, the first night we interviewed Jim Swingos, he asked over to his house the night before the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was taking a lot of the memorabilia. So we got in there and were able to get pictures and see all this different memorabilia that now is, is housed in the Rock Hall. But I don't think it's on display at all. And yet. the key... If you guys want to do some kind of petition and say, hey, put it on display, God damn it, do it. Matt, so, someone's um, sitting on it. Matt, you know, gentleman here in the front row, you know, rightfully pointed out the, the impact influence your grandfather had on your father and you I mean with Swingles wouldn't exist without him either right yeah my, my grandfather was I mean a boilermaker at one time when he got a, he went to East Tech um, got in the dry cleaning business opened bars and uh, was a man of hospitality so you know once my dad kind of hit it big my grandfather joined him and he was the face of the cinnamon bear if you will if anybody remembers the cinnamon bear it was a coffee shop but yeah my grandfather was uh he was uh, a man of hospitality. He, uh, he was a big part of it. And my grandmother counted the money. <laughs> Kudos to her. Uh, I think we're going to, you know, unless I'm, I'm blinded by the light too, but I think we're going to wrap it up there. Um, I, again, I appreciate all you guys coming out. This is a lot of fun. I want to thank the panelists here uh, for coming out and, and sharing your stories and helping us remember Swingo. So give it up for them. Thank you guys again. Enjoy the podcast. Enjoy your night. Take care. And please, please tip your servers.